0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at org. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. They sent their disciples to him, along with Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. Father, as we hear your word proclaimed, we pray that by your grace we might marvel too at what you say to us. Awaken our ears and our hearts, Lord. In Christ's name, amen. Matthew 22 here presents us with an interesting opportunity to end the year and begin the year kind of in the same way, because we have a series of questions that are being posed. We're going to end the year with one question, and then next Sunday we'll come back and Pastor Dan will take us through the next question that is asked. In this case, it's the Pharisees who ask. In the next case, it's the Sadducees who ask. Now, the Pharisees ask about whether the Roman capitation tax or head tax is lawful, while the Sadducees are going to ask a question that's meant to point out what they see as the absurdity of the doctrine of bodily resurrection. Now, on the surface, it may seem like those two questions are unrelated, but actually they are connected by politics, because the Pharisees and the Sadducees are two factions that are at odds with one another, that are looking for ways to gain advantage, to score points against one another. On the taxation question, the Pharisees are against the tax, and the Sadducees are for it. And interestingly here, the people side with the Pharisees. So you can understand why the Pharisees might want to bring this point up. On the question of resurrection, the Sadducees deny bodily resurrection while the Pharisees believe it. And the Sadducees seem to think that this uh, will expose their literalism, right? On the one hand, you have the Pharisees asking a question that's meant to hint at the way that their opponents have compromised politically with the Roman occupiers. And then on the other hand, the Sadducees ask a question that's meant to show these Pharisees are too rigid, they're too strict, they're too literal in their interpretation of Scripture, and it leads to absurdities. So each faction, first of all, wants to trip Jesus up, wants to entangle him, as Matthew says in his words. But... They also, at the same time, hope to score points against one another. Think about what that means in the context of what we've already seen in Matthew 21 and 22. Despite Jesus' cleansing of the temple, despite all of the parables that he shared, which clearly bring these religious authorities under condemnation, they remain unrepentant. They know that Jesus is speaking of them, but it changes nothing. They're still coming after him. But not only that, not only do they continue to be unrepentant, but they continue to underestimate Jesus. It's like they see him as a secondary annoyance in the more important struggle against the other faction. That opposes them. So they have the luxury, they imagine that that in the process of tripping him up, they also have the luxury of going after their political opponents as well. Now, these men are operating on one plane, but it becomes clear that Jesus is focused on another. Right? To them, What matters is this physical, this political struggle for power that they find themselves embroiled in, this faction uh, strife, this, this battle between one group and the other. That's what matters most to them because that's what seems most urgent to them. The question is whether or not that struggle is really what matters most. Most people today assume that it does. We assume that it does, just as they do. We prioritize the physical over the spiritual. We focus on what's immediate. We focus on what's tangible, what's practical, leaving spiritual concerns for another day. Worry about the God stuff when you have time, but there are more immediate concerns that you need to have By the time we're done today, though, I want you to see one thing. That if you're thinking that way, you're thinking the same way that the Pharisees are thinking, you're thinking the same way that the Sadducees are thinking, but you're not thinking the way Jesus is thinking. Because Jesus is on a different plane. And if you're not on the same level, the same plane as Jesus is, then you need to wake up and recognize what really matters. So, we're gonna talk about rendering unto Caesar what is Caesar's and rendering unto God what is God's. And somewhere in between, we'll talk about the image that is stamped on the coin. But first, taxes. Here's what you need to know about the capitation tax, this Roman head tax that they're talking about here. It's a theme that actually, interestingly, parallels the development of the Gospel. Remember, in the Nativity story itself, when Joseph and Mary traveled to Bethlehem, there's a reason they have to do that. And it's because the Roman authorities have decided they need to have everybody registered. Now, you might think the Romans just love statistics. They just want to get an accurate head count just so they know how many people they rule over you. But of course, that is not the reason at all. They want a head count so they can have a head tax. And not surprisingly, that tax is controversial. So it's a tax that the Romans levy on each person, each head who's represented. And what you owe is a denarius, a silver coin, And you have to pay the tax in the coin that's stamped for the purpose of paying the tax. So they don't just levy the tax against you. They stamp these denariuses or denarii, in the image of Caesar. And then you have to do whatever you have to do to purchase one of these coins to pay the Romans their tax in the coin of their realm. Now, nobody likes taxes, But this tax is particularly onerous, it's particularly galling. First of all, to the Israelites, this is a tax levied by an occupying power. These pagans who rule over them are insisting on demanding on this unprecedented tax, and of course, they don't like it. But there's another thing about this tax that really gets them, Which is the manner in which it has to be paid, that denarius itself, because it is stamped with the image of Caesar, the graven image of Caesar, the the Roman emperor who in Rome is treated as if he's a member of the pantheon, that he's divine, he's one of the gods. So just having one of these denariuses in your hand stamped with the image of Caesar feels to a faithful Pharisee a little bit like idolatry, something forbidden in the second commandment, this graven image. On the coin is the picture of Caesar, Tiberius Caesar. And on the coin is the inscription, Tiberius Caesarion, making it clear whose coin this is. Now at the end of Matthew 17, we saw Jesus pay the two drachma temple tax. If you remember that episode, he sent Peter out fishing, and Peter was able to catch a fish, and inside the fish he found a shekel, and that was enough to pay the tax for Jesus and for Peter. And when we looked at Matthew 17, I don't know about you, but I remembered thinking if it was that easy to pay taxes, I would have no bitter feelings. On April 15th. If it just involved a fishing trip, fine. But we've already seen Jesus, who, let's face it, if there's anybody who doesn't need to pay the temple tax, the guy who's about to go to Jerusalem and cleanse the temple of impurity, if anybody had an excuse to say, uh uh-uh, uh, I'm not supporting that, it's Jesus. But Jesus paid the temple tax. Okay, yeah, he did. But then in Matthew 21, he shows up, and he cleanses the temple, and he condemns those religious authorities, and that is a radical act, a challenge right in their face. So no matter what he did in the past, judging his actions now, you could understand where people might think, this guy has a problem with authority, and maybe we could use that to our advantage. If he's willing to make a radical act against religious authority, maybe he would also be interested in making a radical statement against civil authority too. And that would be great, because the religious authorities don't have the power to put him to death, but the civil authorities do. He can quibble with the priests and the elders, that's one thing, but if he starts criticizing Caesar, that's another. And so you can understand why this is a question that they would want to pose to him, right? Because on the one hand, Jesus could continue to support taxation, in which case he would be very unpopular with the people. Because here the people side with the Pharisees. And so the Pharisees are playing that political game that we've seen before of of worrying about the, the, the will of man, not the will of God. But on the other hand, If Jesus comes out against the tax, now he's got Roman authority after him. He's on Caesar's radar. So it's a win-win from the Pharisees' point of view. However he answers, uh, it's got to be good for the Pharisees. So that's the tax. That's why this is a great question for them to ask. But I want you to consider the hypocrisy of the way that they ask the question. They send their disciples. They send some Herodians. So uh, people who are part of the ruling faction, uh, the Herods. So this is a a group of people, proxies for the Pharisee leadership. And they begin by buttering Jesus up. They go to him with flattery They say, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. All of that is 100% true. All of that is entirely accurate. This is the most accurate description of Jesus that has ever come from their lips with one little problem. Two words in the English, we know. Because if there is anything that these men do not know, it is how true the words they've just spoken are. Every action they take demonstrates that they do not know the truth of what they're saying. It's one thing to say Jesus is great, Jesus is Lord, but it's another thing to acknowledge it with your actions, to actually live it, to actually know it. These are very different things. These Herodian political authorities pay lip service to true faith, but they do it to deceive They do it to curry favor with the people. All too often, that sort of thing works. All too often, even believers are deceived when the people who want to manipulate us simply speak to us in the language that we understand. They're speaking our language. They're talking about Jesus, we tell ourselves. So they must believe what we believe. But you know, it's not a credit to Christian discernment that a politician can quote a few Bible passages and get us to compromise our beliefs and fall into line. If it is that simple to deceive us, to just tell us what we want to hear, that's no credit to our wisdom. Instead, consider the example of Jesus When they come to Jesus and they speak these words, words that any teacher might like to hear, the reaction they get is surprising. I hate to admit it, but if you came up to me after this service and said, Oh, Pastor Mark, the words that you say are true. I know that you only speak truth. I know that you don't care about appearances. I know that you don't care what other people think, I would feel so good. And anything you said afterwards, I'd probably agree to. But I'm not Jesus. They come to Jesus this way. They praise Jesus. Jesus says, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? He sees through it immediately. He's not deceived. They can't just use the right language and deceive Jesus. Because Jesus sees the heart. Our church was once criticized because we didn't preach about politics enough. So I'd like to make up for that by sharing with you the number one principle for Christian involvement in politics. Here it is. You have no business dabbling in politics until you have the same contempt that Jesus shows here for human power. When you are true, When you teach the way of God truthfully, then by all means, have at it. When you do not care about anyone's opinion, then go right ahead. When you are not swayed by appearances, then you're good to go. But until then, you need to focus on those things. Otherwise, you'll be seduced by the hypocrisy that you're meant to see right through. When Jesus asks For the coin. And he examines the coin, sees the image of Caesar, points it out. He says, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Matthew says, They marveled at that response. They marveled. Then they left and went away. Hugh McNeil, writing about this passage, observed. It was because the Lord spoke from a different plane that his answer, as on other occasions, was so impregnable. So impregnable. They must have been astonished, he writes, at his aloofness from their plane of thought. Once again, Jesus is approached by men who think they've got him trapped If he chooses this, he loses. If he chooses that, he loses. And Jesus doesn't choose this or that. Jesus, it turns out, is up here. Jesus is operating on a higher plane entirely. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, God says, neither are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, my thoughts than your thoughts. It's Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. There's a truism today that everything is political. Everything is political. Now, if the point of that observation is just to observe that even seemingly unpolitical things often have political implications, that's true, but that's also just common sense. All too often what people mean when they say everything is political is that politics is the most important thing, that politics is the highest consideration, that there's nothing above it, nothing that transcends it, nothing that matters more. These leaders, like our leaders, act as if that is true. They come to Jesus talking politics. But Jesus answers them from a much higher plane. He answers a question that they weren't even asking because they were blinded by their earthly priorities. They marveled because of the profundity of his teaching. Because when they were worried about what they owed or didn't owe to Caesar, Jesus answered them with what they owe to God. Let's think about the image on the coin for a minute. Think about that image of Caesar stamped on the coin. Jesus makes a lot out of that stamped image. For him, just looking at the coin is what settles the question entirely, right? If the denarius is stamped in the image of Caesar, then it was one of the things of Caesar. It belonged to him. So Jesus basically says, give Caesar what belongs to him. Right? They're his coins. They should go to him. They're stamped with his image. They are his possession. So for Jesus, image bearing equals possession. And possession clears up the question of what is owed. If it bears his image, it belongs to him. It is owed to him. That's how it works. Now, it's on this basis that Christians have always recognized that we have a legitimate obligation to civil authority, even civil authority that is not Christian in nature, as the Roman Empire surely wasn't. In Romans 13, Paul outlines the contours of this obligation. As Christians in the Presbyterian tradition, we also recognize what Abraham Kuyper called sphere sovereignty. In other words, uh, the church is a government The state is a government, each government has its own realm of authority, and one should not usurp another. Even the family is a government that God has given authority to. And in each of these spheres, we have a duty to render to authority what is due, to give authority what belongs to it. The coming of the kingdom of God doesn't cancel out these other subordinate powers. It doesn't compete with them on their level. Instead, God's authority is over them. God's authority is above them, not down on the same level. So the question that these men are invited to think about and to marvel at by Jesus, and the question that you need to think about as well, is what do you owe? What do you owe? Like, there's a difference between human authority and ultimate authority. Ultimate authority rules and reigns over human authority. We saw this a few weeks ago when we looked at Acts chapter 4, when the apostles were commanded by religious authorities to no longer preach Jesus. And their response is, hey, <laughs> if, if you think... It's right to obey you instead of God. You be the judge of that. But for us, we just have to bear witness to what we've seen and heard, right? They had to follow God's authority, not man's authority. And the apostles in that moment are simply applying the principle that Jesus teaches here. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Think about it. If we know what things are Caesar's because they are stamped in his image, then how do we know which things are God's? That's the question. Obviously, the things of God will be stamped with the image of God. God says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, in Genesis 1. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. What do you owe to Caesar? A coin. What do you owe to God? Yourself. Yourself. You are stamped in his image. You are the coin on which he has pressed His image. And the pressing of His image upon you is a declaration that you are His. That you belong to Him. It's His image that's stamped on you. Your life, your mind, your body, your soul. These are all the things of God. Not long from now, later in Matthew 22, we'll have Jesus telling us this himself So he quotes Deuteronomy 6 verse 5 he says you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind because all of them are the things of God and we render to God the things that are his so render unto God the things that are God's how did Jesus do this If Jesus is our great example, how did Jesus render to God the things that are God's? If you look in John's Gospel, in John chapter 6, you get part of the answer there. Jesus says in John 6, verse 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And when the people there ask what God expects of them, how to do the work of God, Jesus says, this is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He sent. And when they ask Him for a sign like manna so that they can know that they can trust in Him, Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. He says that His body and His blood offered on the cross would give them life. How did Jesus... Teach us to render unto God the things that are God's. He taught us to pray, as we've just done, thy will be done. And he himself, in the Garden of Gethsemane, before his arrest and crucifixion, when he prays that the cup might pass from him, he then adds, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. What do we owe God? everything. How do we render to God the things that are God's? There's no mystery to that question. It's easy. How do we render to God the things that are God's? That's not hard. That's not hidden. You do his will as Jesus did. You do his will. You submit your will to his will. And in doing that, render unto him the things that are his. Jesus rendered to God the things that are God's by doing the Father's will. And when you do the Father's will, you render to Him what is His. You believe in Christ. You receive life from Christ. You follow Christ in doing the will of the Father, in rendering to God the things that are God's. It's as simple as that. The only reason that we don't see it, the only reason we make it so hard is that the things of God are everything. the answer as obvious as it is is so big sometimes you miss it because it is literally everywhere what this sermon needs before it closes is some kind of a call to action right this is all great render unto god the things that are god now you need a motivational moment that i kind of say hey in 2024 start rendering to god the things that are gods right will you render to god the things that are God's? Will you finally stop holding on to the things that God has given you and instead render them unto Him? All around you, people are focused on the physical and they're ignoring the spiritual. They're asking Jesus about their taxes when He's trying to tell them about their lives. Will you be different? Will you render to God the things that are God's? And obviously, the answer to that would be yes. Obviously, you want the answer to that question to be yes. But what makes you any different from them? Jesus was saying the same thing to them and they marveled and they left. Why would you be any different if all you had was a call to action? They had a call to action too and they walked away condemned. Well, I guess the difference is gonna have to be Jesus. The difference is Jesus. Jesus doesn't leave us in our blindness and our delusion. Instead, he blows our minds. He doesn't leave us down here on this level. He calls us up to that higher plane where he lives. It's Jesus who summons us, not just to render unto God the things that are God's, but to love him with everything that we are. So really, This isn't a call to action. This is a call to grace. This is a call to listen as Jesus himself speaks. This is a call to follow after him as he calls to you. Let's render all that we have, all that we are to God. Let's encourage each other to do his will and not our own. Lift each other up as we attempt to sacrifice ourselves for Him. Let's stop arguing. Let's stop bickering. Let's stop thinking in terms of mine and yours. And finally start seeing that everything is His. Thank you for listening.